0: An algorithm to accurately forecast lightning strikes? Holy cow, let me tell you how important that is. I've been on airports after a storm passed and had my hair stand up and lightning strike within a quarter to half a mile of where I was at out in the open on an elevated metal platform.
1: That is not a so fun experience.
0: I, I would like to know about lightning strikes. And I'm sure many, many ground workers on ramps and uh, part of the you know, airport airlines uh you know, I'm sure they have precautions and they they have things, but if it can be better and if it's free.
1: We the one Good evening, and welcome to Talking Space. My name is Larry Heron, and I am once again joined this evening
2: by Gene McCulka Hi, Gene. Hey, Larry. We're, we're, we're a little damaged, but not unbowed. Just happy to be here. <laughs> I'm happy to
1: hear that. And also joined tonight by Mark Ratterman. How are you doing, Mark?
0: Good. You know, I listen to some shows where they talk about, well, it's been kind of a slow news week. We don't have much to talk about, and... You know, there's always things to talk about here, new, old, and everything in between. So good to be here. Glad we got some content to share.
1: Yeah, we got plenty of it, that's for sure. Did want to mention that Sawyer Rosenstein and Dr. Kat Robeson are out this time, but they will be back. Um, so if we're going to go ahead and start off with our news roundup tonight. Uh, so today we have some interesting news about the Aeolus satellite, which has just on July 28th completed its five years in orbit and made a first-of-its-kind assisted reentry into Earth's atmosphere. And the satellite had already exceeded its mission by two years, and with limited propellant left over... Ground teams were still able to lower the spacecraft to an altitude of 120 kilometers before re-entering the Earth's atmosphere on its own. So, Aeolus is a satellite that measures wind profiles from space, and its return is part of a broader effort to pioneer a safer way of deorbiting satellites nearing the end of their life. And this is a significant achievement for the European Space Agency as the mission was designed to push the limits of space tech and safety. Uh, the satellite was built by Airbus Defense and Space and carried one instrument only, and it was called the Atmospheric Laser Doppler Instrument, or Aladdin for short. The Aladdin fires short pulses of UV light toward the Earth, which bounce off air molecules as they are carried through the atmosphere by the winds, thereby being able to uh, measure the speed and direction of those winds in the lowermost 30 kilometers of the atmosphere. So the re-entry task was unique because missions designed years ago didn't have to adhere to today's casualty regulations, but the satellites that are designed now are required to either completely burn up or undergo a controlled re-entry. A controlled re-entry wasn't possible for Aeolus by design, due to its lack of propellant and inadequate propulsion system, among other reasons as that would require ground teams to maneuver the satellite to an altitude of no more than 50 kilometers. But the ESA spokesperson said, quote, this first attempt at an assisted reentry sets a new precedent for missions that didn't fall under such regulations when they were designed, but could still be made to retroactively adhere to them. So the way that that ground crew was able to use the reaction control system on the satellite to assist re-entry is a big step towards reducing the risk of aircraft reentry and creating a safer environment in space. And also to demonstrate that this isn't just a hypothetical problem to be dealt with sometime in the future, if we really have to. Uh, I'll also mention that once again, a space debris avoidance maneuver was performed on August 10th by the International Space Station using the Progress MS-22 engines. Uh, The engines fired for 196 seconds with an impulse of 0.3 meters per second, and the station's orbit altitude was increased by a half a kilometer. So that's, you know, just another bit of evidence that space debris is a problem that is significant and is not going away by itself.
2: Definitely not. Uh, Just for uh, background on the Aeolus mission, and i'm looking at the uh, uh european space agency website here and i'll i'll quote Aeolus was the first satellite mission to acquire profiles of the earth's wind on a global scale these observations improved weather forecasts and climate models and as you pointed out it uh, carried only one instrument and the mission ended officially on uh, july 28th of of this year 2023 uh the date of its launch um via a uh, a Vega rocket from Coro, French Guiana was uh, August 22nd 2018 so it had a pretty decent uh, uh you know a pretty decent life had a good, a good run yeah it did and it provided a ton of great data for uh uh for both uh, weather forecasters and uh for those monitoring uh, uh climate so a good run for the satellite. Congrats to to uh, to Europe, and even in its demise, it is it is helping out, trying to go ahead and and solve a huge problem.
1: Very good. And while we're talking about uh, getting more data, we also had a, a news conference on the on August eighth about the Artemis two, where we got an update on how things are going with that mission. Gene, you got some more to
2: tell us about that. Yeah, thank you Larry. Um this the uh, the press conference was really really a highlight of where uh, the Artemis 2 mission is currently. Um this was part of a, me- a orchestrated media day at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh there was an opportunity to meet all four of the crew members uh, for this uh flight including uh, uh our uh, our Canadian uh, uh participant Jeremy Hansen. Uh, the commander of the flight, Reed Weissman, Victor Glover, and of course, Christina Cook. Uh, also on the panel were, uh, uh, Jim Free, who is the, uh, associate administrator for, uh, for human spaceflight. And he had some very, very interesting things to say as far as where, where they are with Artemis, with Artemis 2 and of course with Artemis 3. a question came up about about Artemis III and the preparations for it and considering the challenges that that particular mission is going to have, specifically trying to go ahead and get the lander going. Now, we've uh, talked about how the Starship is facing a bunch of challenges here, almost ad nauseum on this program, and those challenges can Well,
1: there's many people who would say it's ad nauseum, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And, um, well, <laughs> yeah, right. Us not um, included though. Yeah. Well, you no. Know, and and <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully not the listeners of the show. But, uh, um, and anyway, uh, and the challenges that they face there, uh, I could go into the environmental stuff, but we have gone into that, you know, pretty much, you know, we've we dug in pretty deep and we'll probably continue to dig deeper into that. Uh, but, d- this evening we will yes yeah um but uh, in this instance uh, one of the things that uh, jim free finds a little concerning and uh, he wasn't the only one to mention this um was that the progress on uh, the starship and the uh, and the lander itself now um they still have to go ahead and launch starship successfully several times uh, they have to go ahead and, and prove that they are able to go ahead and do, uh, you know, in, in flight fueling, basically in, in flight cryogenic transfer of, uh, of fuels from one, one ship to another. And they also have to go ahead and do an unpiloted landing. Uh, judging by the progress, we ain't going to make 2026. So there was some questions as far as, okay, what do you do with Artemis three? if you don't have the lander and uh basically what was insinuated was we'll fly with the hardware we have we will we will fly a mission with what we've got and my bet is there may be a another follow up to the artemis 2 mission where we where we have a, a an actual lunar orbital mission here artemis 2 will not be a direct, uh, lunar orbit mission. It'll be kind of a swing around kind of thing. Even, uh, Reed Weissman was, was kind of candid in that and basically saying, uh, you know, Jeremy Hansen keeps on saying, oh, we're going to go, go ahead and orbit the moon. He said, no, we are not going to orbit the moon. The, 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 the flight profile is, is, is really a, a good one, uh, that they've worked out and, and Reed Weissman has, actually said during the press conference that he was really, really happy with what's going on, um, there. But getting back to the uh, the problems with uh, uh, with with the uh, the lander, uh, right now again they've got to go ahead and prove that they can you know do cryogenic transfer. They have to prove that they can launch this this spacecraft or this rocket successfully over and over again, and they've got to prove that they can actually get to the moon and land something on it. Uh, Free said he was at, uh, uh, at Boca Chica along with uh, some other folks. And uh, they talked with the, with the folks over at SpaceX. They were quite impressed with uh, the technical knowledge that they are presenting and so on. But still um, one of the things that has him concerned is the progress of that, uh, of that, uh, lander. And, um, I remember, um, Mark, you and I had a bit of a conversation after the, uh, the Starship implosion, uh, a, a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, I remember you, you saying quite, uh, almost in earnest that you expected a, a lunar landing in 2030 or that or thereabouts. <laughs> and, uh, I said, you may not be far from wrong. <laughs> The way things are going, so um, we're going to keep our fingers crossed with uh, with with the progress on the uh, on the human landing system. I know this is a, a huge concern. One of the other concerns too that uh, Jim Free said that he had was uh, complacency. He said Artemis One was such a, a unqualified success that he wants to make sure that. To borrow a, a phrase from one of his predecessors, people kind of stay hungry, if you will, uh, that they will continue to 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 make sure that excellence is there and make sure that all the eyes are dotted and t's across, and nobody is going to go ahead and make any mistakes. Uh, that is one of the things that they're really, really trying to to prevent. Um, but it, it sounds like that Artemis 3 may not actually be the landing that we hoped it would be. Uh, but again, um, and this is not the first time Jim Free has said this, I, I believe I don't want to quote, say, attribute this to him because he may not have said it. I would have to go over and look through my notes from the uh, human, um, human Spaceflight uh, NASA Advisory Committee, which uh, Wayne Hale is the lead on. Uh, to see what was said there, but I kind of remember somebody in an, in there at that period of time saying that we're going to fly with the hardware we have. So because even, I think even Wayne Hale expressed his, uh, well, concern about, uh, about the progress of, uh, of the lander and the lander, just like on Apollo is really the linchpin to everything. Yeah. Uh, right. If, if, if that isn't there, that is, that is the long pole in the tent. Right. No lander, you don't, you don't go to the moon. It's that simple. You don't land on the moon. And speaking of that, uh, you attended
1: another press conference, uh, on August 7th about the Boeing Starliner.
2: Yeah. That, that mission, um, that, that was, that was kind of a, an interesting one. Uh, this was an update, um, on the, um, on the progress of, of the Starliner and what was going on and when they might be able to go ahead and have their uh, crewed test flight. Uh, as the announcement went out, it looked like uh, that the earliest that they could, you know, okay the spacecraft to launch would be um, March of next year. So March, 2024, and the reason for that is is twofold um one the, the two major problems that they discovered uh one is the uh P13 kapton tape which they discovered is somewhat flammable um however and boeing was using that to uh in their in the wiring and and so on now before everybody goes oh yeah Boeing messed up well here's the deal that that kapton tape was being used um by everybody um uh, in in this kind of application to wrap wires and so on and so forth and it was discovered that hey guess what it's it is indeed flammable and it wasn't just us it wasn't just Boeing using it um, it was being used pretty much all through the industry, both in, in human spaceflight and in, uh, in unpiloted robotic flight. And, uh, a lot of, there was a question during that press conference too, that, uh, said, well, you know, are you alerting, uh, other, other players in, in this? And, um, uh, Steve Stitch, who is the uh, commercial crew program manager, basically said, yes, we are. Uh, so we they are alerting um, ESA um, and basically all of the partners there are even, you know, I believe to SpaceX, they said, was actually using that tape as well. Not to the extent that Boeing was using it, but they were using it. So they have also advised SpaceX of of the issue and uh they are are also probably making changes as we speak uh in 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 the use of that tape and where they are using it on board the spacecraft so that's one one problem the other problem and I, and i believe this is what uh what a lot of people felt on the panel that this was sort of like the long pole in the tent on on the boeing spacecraft was the parachutes um the, uh, this was a, an issue that they, they, uh, they, they discovered as well. Um, and they are working, they're working to go ahead and solve that problem. It's not to the extent that the SpaceX parachutes had, had an issue. But if you recall, there was a, a, a problem with the actual design of the parachute on the SpaceX mission on, on the SpaceX Crew Dragon, and they literally had to go ahead and redesign that parachute and then do several drop tests to satisfy, um, the, uh, the uh, flight criteria and to sign off on that to make sure it was, it was, it was good to go. Um, in this case, um, it is more a, a rigging issue, um, you know, it has a lot to do with the way the, the lines are connected to the chute. A, the manufacturer of the parachute went ahead, designed a new clamp, um, plus some new, uh, reinforced stitching and so on. And they want to make sure that this particular parachute performs as advertised. So they're going to make one single drop test on, on this. And if it, if the spacecraft and the chutes pass that drop test, then. They'll certify the, the, the spacecraft good to go. Um, there's also some other little issues that they have to take care, care of. So the earliest the spacecraft would be ready would be March of 2024. Uh, whether or whether or not that's going to be the launch date, <laughs> that's a whole different ballgame in and of itself. Because as you, this audience well knows, the International Space Station is you know uh, to use an old song is busier than Grand Central Station these days. You have different visiting vehicles and so on. So you have to go ahead. So uh, the plan here is to have Joel Montalbano take a look at uh, where he can plug in the uh, the Boeing Starliner for the crude flight test. So that also has to has to happen. But they don't want to put the cart before the horse, so they're not going to go ahead and make preparations to. To say, okay, hey, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll stick the launch in there and that's that. The other thing too, they want to check with is United Launch Alliance to make sure that the, the Atlas V that's going to take the Starliner up is going to be ready to go and when that can happen. So ULA also has to get involved and, and let all the players know that, hey, yeah, we can get this Atlas V ready to go at this date. And, uh, then they'll make, the, they'll start making the decisions. Uh, they, one reporter, and I'm trying to remember who it was, was, was kind of pressing Steve Stitch into giving a date for the actual, um, first Starliner mission, basically past crew, uh, past the, uh, the crewed flight test. And, uh, Steve Stitch basically said, no, not so fast. Let's just get through CFT first and see where we're at after that. And then we'll, we'll talk about the first actual operational mission of, of Starliner. Um, one of the things that kind of surprised me a little bit during that press conference was still a lot of the press asking, uh, Mark Nappi, who is the Boeing representative, um, why are you still continuing to, to do this? Why, you know, I mean, the space station is going to last until 2030. Then, you know, basically the program is over. Um, uh, Mark Nappi reminded those folks that we will have, uh, commercial facilities and commercial space stations flying at some point, And Boeing intends to be ready to support those commercial stations right now. There's only one provider and that is SpaceX. Uh, they would also have to continue to create the crew dragons or if they're going to use, you know, Starship to do that, that's totally up to them. But, um, also, you have uh, you know, Sierra Nevada's Dream Chaser coming online, but that still has to go through its its challenges. So Boeing is hoping to be part of that that matrix, and you know be a part of all of that when uh, when they start uh, really really flying, not only to the ISS but to these other commercial commercial destinations. So they think they've got a market, they think they've got a niche. They're going to be talking uh Mark Nappy said they're talking to other client potential clients. So uh it, it, once Starliner gets through its growing pains and they have been, you know, real growing pains. I mean, I think um right now I think the the uh, if I recall um seeing this on on Marcia Smith's space policy online the price tag has exceeded one billion dollars on this, and since it's a fixed price, Boeing is eating a lot of the 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 uh, the costs on this. Right. So we'll have to just you know stay tuned, see how how things go, wait till March. Um, if the spacecraft is ready, they'll go ahead and. Put that in there I'm not going to go on a limb and say when CFT will be but my bet will probably be sometime either you know in, in, in the second quarter of next year and then after that they'll probably sit down look at all the data and make the determination on when they'll launch um, the first uh, operational la- uh, you know, exchange on, on on the starliner. The idea really is to have both options on the table. They want SpaceX to fly one mission a year, and they want Starliner to fly one mission a year to the International Space Station between now and you know whenever the the program shutters, which right now is scheduled for 2030. So that's really the end game. But I think Boeing too wants to be part of the commercial transportation system to these commercial stations. So.
0: Of course, you got to draw a parallel. At least I have to draw a parallel. Uh, And what comes to mind is fusion energy. Fusion energy is a promise of clean, safe, virtually unlimited energy. Been talking about it for decades. And at various times, it's been said to be two decades away. Then it's three decades away. And now it's back to two decades away. So all of this stuff, yeah, um, I'm not going to hold my breath on any of it. Sorry to be so... Contrary and negative and hopeless but um
2: it's just the way i feel i've been hearing about the promise of helium 3 mark along with these fusion reactors and every time i that comes up you know well we need helium 3 to power fusion reactors my feel my i i look at the person and go what fusion reactors so you know you you know i don't want to be uh you know a donald downer here but uh um. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. <laughs> I, I'm going to go ahead and have
0: some more fun, you know, on things being flammable as part of the construction of spacecraft. You know, I would venture to say that under the right or wrong, if you prefer, conditions, if you had some pasta that had not been prepared for a meal yet, it could be flammable. Well, that's most definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say we we might as well just go back and crawl in our cave and play it safe.
2: Well, um, to the the Kapton tape problem, um, I'm going to go ahead and say uh that there were shades of Apollo 1 there. Um, uh, that's what a lot of people were saying. Uh and I kind of have a tendency to agree. Um but indeed you have to go ahead and take calculated risk and i think that's where where we're coming from i remember one of the interviews we did early on on the show was uh god bless him was with Walt Cunningham and we talked about risk aversion with him and he basically had the feeling that oh well, maybe we we are kind of slowly becoming a little less less risk averse but You want to again? I'm 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 going to quote. I'll I'm going to go ahead, reach into my bag, grab a grab a Star Trek quote here, um from from uh, one of the episodes with the Borg. Actually, I think it was the first one that that uh, they showed up in, where Q has this line: um, "If you can't take a little bloody nose, why don't you go ahead, go back home and crawl under your bed? It's not safe out here. It's wondrous." With treasures to satiate, desires, both subtle and gross, but it's not for the timid. Indeed, I believe that wholeheartedly. You have to take calculated risk. But if you find something on your spacecraft that's well, a little dubious, you want to go ahead and make sure that uh, you've done all your due diligence. We'll be right back.
1: You know, we do a lot of talking here on Talking Space about a wide variety of space-related stuff. But there's a lot more to talk about and report on in the universe of space. So much more. Is there something you'd like us to pay more attention to than we do? Or perhaps pay not so much attention to? But if your answer is, yeah, about a little less SpaceX, then I wouldn't hold your breath with this crew. The point is, we'd like to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Send us an email to mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com. You can also attach a short audio file with your comment or question, and we'll play it on the show if we can. Come on, don't be shy. Hey, I think I sound stupid, and I'm doing it. And if I can, you can. Can't wait to hear from you. Thanks. And now, back to the show. We promised that we would keep you up to date on the situation with SpaceX and the Starship and Boca Chica and all that. So, so here goes. So after having a look at the docket entries on courtlistener.com this afternoon, I can say that there still is no movement on the lawsuit showing up there. There may, however, be some newer developments that could give the plaintiffs more ammunition in their lawsuit against the FAA and SpaceX. So if I'm going to back up a little bit here and give a little background. So in late July, the uh, Jared Margolis, the senior attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity and the lead counsel in this suit against the FAA, told CNBC before the first test of the steel plate water deluge system that running it without a permit is, quote, very concerning, unquote. He also said, we don't know if there is any mechanism in place to make sure runoff is not reaching surrounding habitat, he said. They are clearly making changes to the launch site and how they do their launches. There's been no transparency on that and no way for the public to see what those changes are or offer comment on them as the National Environmental Policy Act requires, unquote. So CNBC also reported that the FAA said in an email in late July that, quote, the SpaceX launch site in Boca Chica is not licensed by the FAA, though a vehicle operator's license from the agency for SpaceX remains in effect. Uh, videos showing SpaceX testing its new cooling system both last month and on August 6th showed that significant quantities of water from the water deluge system at the facility flowed to the bare ground surrounding the launch pad as a result of the tests. Uh, a TCEQ representative told CNBC that no determination has been made as to whether the activity violated environmental laws The agency is currently evaluating the use of the pressurized water system as part of SpaceX launch operations to see if state environmental regulations apply or were violated. And we can also report that SpaceX has, since that time, installed some additional facilities to aid in controlling runoff of wastewater from the deluge system. And those improvements consist of a couple of bermed water retention areas And while this is a welcome development, it still does not change the fact that SpaceX, to the best of our knowledge as of this recording, has yet to even apply for an industrial wastewater permit for the deluge system and would therefore be likely in violation of the Clean Water Act.
2: Wow. I'm just going to just for um, folks who are not familiar with with the abbreviation TCEQ. That's the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality. Right. Um, just quickly, again, that you're telling me that 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 Starship isn't there's no permit to launch there. <laughs> there there's there's no you're not licensed to launch anything from there. <laughs> Did I hear that right?
1: Well, uh, as it as it stands right now, the the launch license is suspended pending the outcome of the mishap investigation report.
2: Right, has that materialized? Because the last time I heard that that SpaceX is still yet to uh, the, uh, produce one. The last we
1: checked, which was in time for the last episode of Talking Space, no, it had not been submitted to the FAA yet. Interesting. And, and they also have not submitted an application for an industrial wastewater permit. So
2: um, I, I'm, I'm beginning to think that uh, to, to use a, a um, NCIS euphemism, one of Gibbs rules, uh, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Uh, I think they're kind of operating, and and this kind of is is the modus operandi of a lot of Musk's companies, including, you know, the, the site formerly known as Twitter. There just seems to be nobody thinks. Nobody thinks anything out. They just kind of do. It's just to me, this is just going to go on and on and on. And a lot of the I, I think they're going to try to cut corners. I think they're going to try to go ahead and, and pull fast ones like any other, you know company does and when they get caught it's like well we're SpaceX (laughs) so what you know and and that's the that's the whole reason why they should be able to get away with it yeah and and to me I mean shoot Larry the uh, I I had it's funny when when Antares launched for the first time over at Wallops Island uh, one of the and I said this before I think on a previous program and apologies if I'm repeating but Gosh, darn it. I, I asked during a press conference, uh, is there anybody, you know, monitoring the environment over at the Chincoteague Wildlife Refuge as you launch these things? So this, this is one of the biggest things we've launched off of off of the uh, the, the mid-Atlantic coast. And the answer was, yes, uh, we're, we're you know, we've we've done all the due diligence. We have filed all the paperwork there is to file. We've gone through right. all of the uh um, all of the, uh, the, the acts that we can to, um, you know, satiate the, uh, the environmental protection agency and so on.
1: Right. And as Eric Resch has pointed out on this show before, uh, literally every other launch facility in the United States has an industrial wastewater permit for their water deluge system.
2: Yeah. Thank you. And,
1: and not only that, but they all have, you know, if they're, if they're firing a rocket that's big enough to warrant it, they all have water deluge systems.
2: Yes. Um, I mean, I mean, shoot, the, one of the other things that, uh, that, um, at that time, Orbital Sciences was doing, they actually had, um, individuals on the island at Chincoteague during, during the launch, and they had sensors on the island during the launch that were monitoring the wildlife. To see what the reaction would be, and so on. I mean, that's how how integrated they they were. They also have a heart, and I've said this again, I think, a few times on the show. They have a hard and fast rule launch rule. If the wind is blowing, if the prevailing winds are blowing in the direction of the wildlife ref, refuge, it's an immediate scrub. Right. You know. So, I mean, what I'm saying is, other agencies and other other companies seem to seem to go ahead and play nice with the environment and with all of the the regulations and so on. yeah, there's probably things that that you know folks are allowed to fudge and get away with, but by and by it's it's usually by the book. why isn't why can't SpaceX do the same thing? That's all I'm asking, yeah, and I, i'm I'm not being against them. I'm just saying, Why can't they go ahead and, and, and do whatever every every other company does and, and try to go ahead and get the job done, do what you need to do. Yes. But also preserve the area around there. And that, that's all I'm saying. I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and leave it at that and, and let, you know, let the audience decide.
1: Probably a wise choice. So, onward. Mark, you have a story for us about uh, NASA's new uh, software catalog. And there's a key word in there that I didn't use yet. What is that?
0: Uh, Does it start with an F? Yeah, it does. Ooh, free. (laughs) Yeah. Free, free, free. (laughs) So... You know, there's so many things that that we hear about. And in my case, it goes in one ear and out the other. But um, NASA has a software catalog. They've released it for 2023-2024. And each year, scientists, engineers, developers create these software packages uh, to manage space missions, test spacecraft, analyze petabytes of data, Produced by agency research satellites. Um, as they innovate for the benefit of humanity, many of these programs are now downloadable and free of charge through NASA Software Catalog. They got 15 different categories. Uh, there's environmental science, there's a modeling software that provides value for atmospheric parameters, such as temperature winds for any month and location in the earth's atmosphere. They got a geospatial system for disaster response using low cost hardware, such as digital cameras or cell phones, a cloud-based toolkit that allows collaboration, collaboration. Does anyone like collaboration among researchers in earth science? An algorithm to accurately forecast lightning strikes. Holy cow! Let me tell you how important that is. I've been on airports after a storm passed, and had my hair stand up and lightning strike within a quarter to half a mile of where I was at, out in the open on an elevated metal platform.
1: That is not a fun experience.
0: I, I would like to know about lightning strikes, and I'm sure many, many ground workers on ramps and uh, part of the you know airport airlines. Uh, you know, I'm sure they have precautions and they, they have things, but if it can be better and if it's free. So anyway, um, it'll be a link in our show notes. I'm not going to go on about it, but this is a NASA software catalog offering free programs for earth science and more. You can probably search for it, but we'll have a link in our show notes.
1: Thank you very much, Mark. So to switch gears a little bit, uh we wanted to talk a little bit about uh about Buzz Aldrin and Apollo 11 moon landing. So last month we celebrated the 54th anniversary of the July 20th, 1969 moon landing. And uh, if you're like me, you read a lot of space-related stuff. So when July 20th rolls around, you see a lot of Apollo 11-related stuff. And one thing that I read caught my interest is something that I had never known before, which made me think that maybe some other listeners of this show hadn't heard about it either. So here goes. Let's find out. What I think most of our listeners know is that Apollo 11 astronauts Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong became the first people to erect an American flagpole on the moon on July 20th, 1969. However, what most people don't know is that that flag flew for only 14 hours. So when... American businessman, venture capitalist, and space artifact collector Steve Urbitson obtained the prototype build of the Apollo 11 flag and showed it to Buzz Aldrin. His eyes went wide. He signed it, and he pointed out the flaws that made its deployment a struggle and described its fate. So, So here's what happened. So just three months before Apollo 11... Robert Gilruth, who was the first director of what was then known as Houston's Manned Spacecraft Center, put in a request for the MSC's Technical Services Division to design a flagpole that could support the U.S. flag in an environment with no atmosphere. It had to be lightweight. It had to be compact. It had to be easily assembled by astronauts wearing pressurized spacesuits clu- space with big, bulky gloves. So <clears throat> the problem was... A flag was such an afterthought that there was no place for it in the lunar module. So amazingly, it was not even contemplated as part of the mission. But Congress had insisted in the funding bill that there be a flag on the moon or there would be no funding for the Apollo program. So it was one of those, holy crap, we got to get this done ASAP moments for NASA. So... Uh, they, they had to design the flag to break it into segments, add a hinge and a telescoping arm, roll it all up into a shipping cylinder, and attach it to the ladder on the leg of the lander, because that was the only place it could go at that point in the mission. The rest of the lander had already been designed. There was no place else it would fit. It needed a protective sleeve to shield it from the 2,000-degree temperature of this the descent engine, uh, there were some reports I found that said the flag was ordered right out of the standard government procurement catalogs. And other reports said that a staff member just went to Sears and bought an American flag off the shelf. But whatever the case, it was apparently a standard nylon or polyester flag. But because the final decision to fly the flag was made so close to the launch date, A Learjet was chartered to fly it with George Lowe, who was the manager of the Apollo spacecraft program, to Kennedy Spacecraft Center before the launch. And the flag was added to the lem leg of Apollo 11 at four o'clock in the morning as the spacecraft sat atop the Saturn V rocket ready for launch. The final version had a beveled edge for lunar insertion, but as Buzz told Jervitson, the engineers beveled it the wrong way on the interior. So the lunar regolith, which is just a fancy word for the soil, funneled into the central shaft, making it difficult to insert the farther you tried to push it into the ground. So Buzz recalls that, quote, it took both of us to set it up and it was nearly a disaster. As hard as we tried, the telescope wouldn't fully extend. So thus, the flag, which should have been flat, had its own unique permanent wave. And then to our dismay, the staff of the pole wouldn't go far enough into the lunar surface to support itself in an upright position. So after much struggling, we finally coaxed it to remain upright, but in a most precarious position. I dreaded the possibility of the American flag collapsing into the lunar dust in front of the television camera, uh Jerv- says his prototype has the same flaws, and both have a sagging upper hinge, too. So Buzz's concerns were not unfounded, as it turned out. So in, in Jervitson's video interview, Buzz told him that Neil Armstrong clearly saw the flag blow over on takeoff of the ascent stage as they left the moon. He ended the video interview with this. He said, quote, we can say with total certainty that of six flags on the moon, ours was the best looking flag until we lifted off and it blew over. Neil saw it fall down and he shared it with me and we decided that it wasn't really necessary to inform the public immediately. So why isn't the flag visible in recent detailed lunar reconnaissance orbiter images of the Apollo 11 landing site? One might assume it would remain intact, undisturbed to this day. Decades of extreme UV exposure and temperature swings of hundreds of degrees each day certainly don't help. However, the lunar dust also has peculiar properties. Recent studies have shown that the nanoparticles within the dust can become electrostatically charged, perfectly accounting for the lunar dust's tendency to float around and to stick to everything. The lunar surface swirls in electrostatic eddies, over time tearing the decomposing flag fabric apart to something unrecognizable. The other five flags planted by the other Apollo mission astronauts are still standing. How do we know? Images from the LRO show they are still casting shadows on the lunar surface. Or they were, as of 2012, when the last publicly discussed images were taken anyway. And that's the little-known parts of the story of Buzz Aldrin and the American flag on the moon. So there's one more thing we want to bring you tonight, a segment about uh, the, the Blue Origin solar cell development. This has many implications and ramifications for a number of programs. Take it away, Mark.
0: So from a NASA press release uh, within the last couple of weeks, uh, I'm introducing a, a, a broad topic that I'll zero in on Blue Origin shortly. NASA has what they call their 2023 tipping point selections. They've selected 11 companies to develop technologies that will support long-term exploration on the moon and space under their sixth tipping point opportunity uh, for this award. The partnerships get $150 million, and each company contributes a minimum percentage based on company size of the total project cost. The ones that got my attention, and these are all very interesting things to look into further, but Blue Origin for one and Xeno Power Systems for the other, Blue Origin is going to be... Advancing an end-to-end in-situ resource utilization system that can extract oxygen, iron, silicon, aluminum from lunar regolith simulant and use the extracted materials to produce solar cells and wire. And they're not just doing this from, uh, some dime store version of lunar regolith. They're doing it from something that is chemically and mineralogically equivalent to the lunar regolith, accounting for variability in grain size, bulk chemistry, and they want to ensure their starting material is as realistic as possible. They're talking about this uh, being a, to me, it's quite incredible. They're going to have a system that will take materials molten above 1,600 degrees Celsius in a controlled power-efficient manner and create these solar cells. I'm not even going to try to describe the details that are in their press release, but I think it's quite interesting, and there will be a link to it in our show notes. The other company is Xeno Power Systems, and one of the things that I've always had a fascination with is the uh, RTGs, an RTG being a radioisotope, in this case, an RSG, radioisotope sterling generator. These have been used on many missions, uh, not the sterling generator type radioisotope equipment, but other types based on plutonium-238. And uh, this is going to be different in that they're going to be using americium-241 and it is essentially um, a kind of a waste product that they're going to look to develop into a power system that's going to have three times the efficiency of legacy radioisotope power systems. And it'll be state of the art technology for broad use by NASA and commercial space customers. And of course, you know, solar cells are good for daytime. But what about the two weeks of darkness on the moon? And so there you have this radioisotope power system that's going to fill that gap to power, you know, future exploration of the moon. I think it's quite interesting. Like I said, I've always been fascinated by radioisotope thermoelectric generators. So I'm going to look into this further. I remember years ago hearing about americium 241 and there's considerable difficulties with the plutonium-based Um, the PU-238, in fact, a long time ago, I set up a a, a Google News saved search type parameter, and it periodically bounces something into my inbox. Lately, quite a few things, because the Voyager spacecraft are powered by these legacy type systems. So there's always news popping in. Some of it uh, just reruns of old information, but... When you get something new like this, it's exciting because it's going to be a, a game changer for how we do things.
1: I wonder if those americium based uh, generators are any, you know, any less uh, controversial in terms of dangers of contamination if the launch goes awry and needs to be terminated.
0: Good
2: question. That I don't know. Mm.
1: Something for further investigation.
2: Indeed, and just, just as an aside, I know that, uh, uh, like for instance, uh, I know the RTGs are pretty, you know, pretty robust in their shielding and so on. In fact, uh, case in point, the Apollo 13, uh, lunar module, Aquarius, when it re-entered, went into the drink. It too had an old style RTG because that powered the Apollo um, all set. Basically, the experiments that were left behind on the moon, that RTG was responsible for for powering those things. And it went into the Indian Ocean when uh, Aquarius burned up. Uh It's still there. And as far as I know, we haven't had any reports of you know. I don't want to be flippant, but we haven't had any reports of any strange fish or anything like that. So, um, or any any you know contamination of of where uh, Aquarius went into the drink. So, well, well, yes and no. There, uh, I did read
0: some time ago that they did find um, some some low levels of radiation consistent with that fuel source really now that doesn't mean it was anything environmentally changing of conditions in the, in the sea, but consider another fact if I've got this fact, right, who knows with my memory, (laughs) but you could hold a sheet of paper between you and plutonium 238 and it would block the radiation. Right. Right. So we're not talking high-level radiation, but you don't want to have an accident on launch. And, right. Uh, it's interesting, something to consider. Indeed. I'll, I th- suggest we just give it to SpaceX. They'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> and on that note, it sounds like a good place to to end this episode. So uh, thank you very much, Gene McCulka, for joining us tonight.
2: Thanks, Larry. Just real fast, I want to mention that, uh, um, I'm, I'm looking at a tweet from Professor Abel Mendez. Uh, the Arecibo Observatory is closing down this Monday and will be transitioning to a, uh, only a learning facility. Uh, this also includes its computers. And apparently Professor, uh, Mendez has been very busy downloading and setting everything to continue to work on other other computer systems basically trying to go ahead and make sure all the data that that arecibo has collected over the years is secure and can be uh extracted at any any time for future future scientists to take a look at um darn shame that uh uh arecibo will be closing its observational history but it will continue as a uh a learning center but um It's still a darn shame that we're not going ahead and and putting that that telescope back in operation and back in use. Indeed. So at any rate, that'll do it for
1: us tonight. So thanks, Gene. Thanks, Mark, for joining us. See you next time, like it or not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sure we'll like it a lot. Thanks to you, all of our listeners, for joining us tonight as well. You can always get in touch with us, ask us questions, make comments, anything you want uh, at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com or on our individual uh, email addresses, which you can find on our website under the About Us section on talkingspaceonline.com. And this is Larry Herron uh, wishing you a, a good day, and we'll see you next time.